Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Micah Zevin. Welcome, Micah. Hey, VJ. Hey, good morning, good morning. Morning. Let me just adjust a little bit of the volume. Okay, so um, our special guest is Professor Richard Jeffrey Newman, who has been teaching ESOL, uh, Technical Writing, Women's Studies, and Creative Writing at Nassau Community College, uh, English Department since 1989. He's published two books of poetry, Words, for what those men have done, uh, published by Gernika Editions, 2017, and The Silence of Men, published by um, Calvin Carey Press, 2006. He has also published a chapbook of poetry for my son, A Kind of Prayer, published by Ghostbird Press, 2016, as well as three books of, tra- of translations from classical Persian poetry. Most recently, The Teller of Tales, stories from the um, Ferdowski, Ferdowski's, uh, I'm not sure if I can, Shanema. Sh- Sh- uh, Shahnameh. Thank you, thank you. Uh, published by Junction Press, 2011. Uh, Professor Newman is on the executive board of Newtown Literary, Queens, um, New York-based literary nonprofit, and curates the first um, Tuesday reading series in Jackson Heights. Uh, welcome, welcome. How are you? How are you? How's everything going? How, we're, on the, we're on the eve of uh, the major elections. So, how, how are your thoughts and feelings about that? Well, first, let, let me just say hello to both of you, Vijay and Micah. And Vijay, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Um, thank you. My thoughts about the election: I'm nervous. Um, I'm 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 nervous. I mean, we went. My wife and I went and voted a couple of days ago, and I've been trying to kind of pay only half attention to what the news is saying and what the polls are saying because God only knows which ones are right and which ones are wrong. And, and, you know, sometimes I think the media pays attention to the wrong things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and, and they make, make stories out of things that shouldn't be stories. And so I I am, I am frankly nervous. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it seems like, you know, language is becoming more and more a focus of politics, the politics of language and language, how it plays into people's message. Um, you know, how, um, you know, maybe people talk about propaganda, maybe people talk about how language can be manipulated, how language can be triggering, how, right. how like people can use language to trigger off emotional reactions in people. Uh, so let me get a little bit into that. What are your perspectives on the politics of language and, and how, um, you know, grammar is perhaps the, the, you know, I think there was a quote by Joan Didion uh, who said, self-mastery is connected to self-language. I forget the exact quote, I'm paraphrasing. But like uh, self-mastery has to do with mastery of language. Um, right. So what is your opinion on that? What is your take on that? I mean, the po- you know, the, the politics of language is such a huge, is such a huge subject. Mm. Right. Um, I mean, if you listen to, if you listen to Donald Trump, and, and I don't, and, you know, just listen to the way he uses language. Um, it's almost like, it's almost like he's trying to cast a spell. Yeah, I was just saying that last episode, people. Were you really? I was just saying that. Yeah, I was just saying the last episode. Although I, I, I just kind of saying it. Well, one of the previous episodes I was mentioning like the triggering effect is the spell casting. You know, that, it could. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, no, that that kind of makes sense. Thank you so but much. I, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. But but I also think I also think it's it's like um, he's just he, he he tries to to he says he says these words that it's hard to believe that he actually means, mm. right? But they 
push buttons in people and they create an atmosphere. And that, and that atmosphere sort of is, is like the casting of a spell. And so, you know, in, I mean, prop, what is, you know, what is propaganda, right? Propaganda is, is the use of language to get people to believe and or do specific things, whether or not, regardless of what, you know, regardless of what's in their own self-interest, let's say, mm. you know, um, and I think Donald Trump, I mean, what the, Donald Trump gets people to, to, support him even though it's really not in their own self-interest yeah you know and i mean even, I, I don't know you listen i i my I, I had a hard time listening to any of the presidential debates mm. yeah yeah for that too. Yeah, you know too. for that reason you know joe biden well i would of course prefer for him to win over donald trump but you know i mean joe biden also he he has this persona of being this kind of straight talking honest guy and yet, is he really? Yeah, yeah. And I don't mean I don't mean that to create a false equivalence between between Biden and Trump. It's just any politician is going to have to do stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, I think ultimately we have to realize that we have to own our own reality. We have to own our own power as the people in this uh, country. We have to kind of own our own power that we're the ones who are going to fight for ourselves. No one else is looking out for us. We're looking out for ourselves. You know. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. You have to pressure, you know, we have to put pressure on whoever is in there because their own self-interests and the people, the corporate interests of the people that are influencing them will stop them from doing any of the changes if they have their say. So, well, that's right. I mean, that, that is the problem. I think Joe, Joe Biden might be more malleable to, like, you know, compromising and doing some things that, like, he needs to do because of this pandemic than... You know, Trump, who just makes up stuff, and <laughs> yeah, he's definitely more humble. He's definitely more humble. But Joe Biden's yeah. definitely more humble, and he's he made a lot of more. Perceives not my, not my preferred candidate, but yeah, he definitely perceives us more as a as a servant to the people rather than a, yeah. A, you know, kind of pumping way, right? I don't know that we're going back to like Obama, really, or normal. There's no normal. Yeah, yeah. but I don't know if we can ever return to. Uh, you know, the way things were, our, our ignorance or our apathy. Yeah. yeah. There's truth in that. But I, I also think, you know, when I think about the politics of language, for me, it's also a very local kind of question because I teach writing. Yeah, exactly. That's what we want to get right. into now. Yeah. You know, I mean, because I teach writing and also because my, by, my professional credentials are in teaching English as a second language. Mm. Um, and so, you know, in, in both of those instances, the politics of language and, and, I mean, you mentioned grammar, become really, I mean, they become local in the sense that, you know, the, 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 what, what is at stake for the individual person, for the student in my class, let's say. You know, we often don't think of it as political, but it's really political. You know, when, you know I, I have not taught ESL classes in quite some time. But um, the question of, you know, what does it mean? So I don't know, I mean, you know, I don't know if they still call themselves this, but there was for a long time a movement in this country called the English Only Movement. Mm -hmm. And they, they wanted to pass a constitutional amendment making English the official language of the United States. Yeah. And basically to um, outlaw all of, like, you know, when you go for a driver's license, and you can get your, your, your instructions and you can take the test in another language. And they have all, you know, we have all of these translation services kind of built into government services and what have you. And this organization wanted to outlaw that. 
Yeah. And I don't know if they still exist, but, you know, right there, you have, you know, that raises questions. What does it actually mean to teach English to someone from another country? Mm. Um, there's, there's a huge, there's like a, there's a tension between on the one hand, they need to be able to produce English in a certain way in order to participate in society. Mm. They need to be able to read at a certain level. They need to be able to speak with a certain level of fluency. And depending upon, you know, what their, what their um, career aspirations are, and even and if they're going to have children, how they're going to you know help and participate in their children's education, they have to be able to write at a certain level of of accuracy. Um, but inevitably, that involves a kind of inter when you're when you're a second language learner, it involves a kind of internal negotiation with yourself. Um, you know how much of because. I mean, I don't know if either of you are, are fluent in, in other languages, but you actually have different personalities. You have, I mean, there, there are differences in, in, the, in, in your in personality, in the way that you speak, in the way that you feel in the different languages. Yeah, I, I, I understand I, uh, worldview. The way we see the world is really shaped by the language we speak. You know, would you agree? Um, in some ways it is. Yeah. In, in some ways it is, but you know, there's a, there's a, there's a version of that called the, the superior wharf hypothesis, mm -hmm. which, which says based, which this kind of strict understanding of that says that, um, you can only see things through your language. Right. So there's the famous, I mean, it's, I don't, there's a famous example that, you know, Eskimos, Inuit, actually, I mean, right. The Inuit people up, up in Alaska, um, have you know a number of a number of different words for snow whereas whereas you know we call snow snow mm. um and and the superior wharf hypothesis says well you know that kind of shapes the world view of the inuit versus let's say us but you know it's an interesting question because it's not like we can't understand those other different kinds of snow just because we don't have a word, you know, a specific word right. for it doesn't mean that we can't understand it. We can't perceive it or recognize it, um, you know, or, or in, in, in some Native American languages with a verb structure um, is very, very different from in English. Or in languages, I'll give you another example. Uh, um, there are languages which have um, gender neutral pronouns. Mm. Right, so my wife, for example, speak, is from Iran, and in Persian, they don't have he or she or him or her. The pronouns are gender neutral, and so when she speaks, you know, she'll be talking about our son, and she'll sometimes refer to him as she, mm. because you know, because of that confusion. Does that mean that Persian culture is somehow inherently more egalitarian? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah. You know, also, also, I was going to say what that um, made me think of was about um, kind of how uh, you were talking a little bit about misreadings in, in text and how, you know, people can maybe come to see, see text. And uh, in your pre-interview questions, you're talking about your concern for misreadings or misinterpretations, like how people can kind of perhaps I kind of jumping off from there. I'm thinking how we kind of see ourselves in the writings and reflection of ourselves in the writings we read, maybe. I don't know what it is. What is it? How is it? People have, we have some very many times we have when people approach a text, they have like what we call consider gross misreading of the text, you know, and then the, mm -hmm. the author and we think about, 
you know, oh, we should read text with the intention of the author in mind. And that's one camp. And another campus says the text independent of the author, that is just a totally, we have to discover ourselves in that text. And what is your take right. on this debate? Um, I would ask, why do you have to choose? Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, those I are mean, two comp some competing ideologies, but perhaps well, there's some nuanced approach to that, yeah. Well, but I, I mean, we all bring to anything that we read who we are. Right. We, anything, we all bring that. I mean, your reading of a text is going to be very different from my reading of a text, if, even if we're reading the same text, mm. simply because you have a different, you know, you, you, have, you bring to it a different um, set of experiences, a different set of assumptions, a different set of, of expectations of what you would like to get from the text, even. Mm. Right. Um, I mean, and that's, and, and, and we also bring to it, you know, different sets of, um, unconscious assumptions mm. right different sense of things that, you know things that are that, that we are socialized into or that you know kind of that are kind of inculcated in us um that you don't you know you're not necessarily aware of until someone makes them aware makes you aware of it so there's there's a famous example um in and i'm blanking on the name of the book by elaine showalter and a co-author was kind of the first book that really um set out a kind of feminist literary critique, right? Um, and so there's a famous, there's, there's this, in, in one of Thomas Hardy's novels, there's a scene, the beginning of the novel, I think it's Jude the Obscure, where a husband is going to sell his wife. And one of the things that, that Elaine Showalter, and I really cannot remember the other woman's name, one of the things they say is, you know, if you are a man, <clears throat> you're going to read that text in one way. If you are a woman, you are absolutely going to read that text in a different way, right? If you are, if you allow yourself as a woman, if you identify with the wife, you're going to have a very different experience of that text than a man who, you know, kind of on a simple, simplistic way will tend probably identify with the husband who I believe is the protagonist of the book. And so, you know, in that way, kind of all readings are misreadings. Mm. Because there is no one set, absolutely true, objective meaning to a right. text. If that makes sense. Yeah, I was going to talk a little bit about poetry and how poetry presents that unique, uh, out of all the genres, that unique ambiguity. Uh, you know that that has opened the door for many over the years, over the, over the history of um, human history, for people to say poets lie. You know, that the poets are liars. And I think a lot of people have said, you know, some very staunchly traditional people or some, you know, people have echoed that in jokey kind of ways. But like right. um, they talk about poets being liars. And I, I believe that poets obviously are truth tellers. You know, I believe that they tell this hidden truth, the personal truth that. But it's also an, uh, also I think that truth that they tell is very empowering because we, it allows for the reader more power than other texts do, I think. And what is your take on that? Do you, do you remember? I mean, am I misremembering? Are you? You're, isn't there a, a a kind of folk saying that calls lies poetry? Yeah, this, it's all over the place. It's so right? many different places. So many different sources for that. That right? uh, that conceptualization that poets are liars and that they're they don't tell the truth because they they use ambiguity. But I yeah. think that ambiguity is very empowering. I see that ambiguity as being a very empowering ambiguity. That when people read it, when the reader reads it. They can then take their the poet's journey on as their own, you know. 
But what is your take on that as far as the ambiguity? Well, I mean, goes I mean, we're all, we're all I mean, we're all three of us here poets, right? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I, I think your question makes me think of two things. Um, one is just out, you know, my, my, June Jordan was my first poetry teacher, mm. um, way back in 1982 or three or something like that. And, and, you know, her, for her, her, one of her definitions of, of a poem was that it is a vehicle for telling the truth. Yeah. A poem is a vehicle for speaking the truth. And personally, I believe that. Right. Personally, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of the, you know, the, the one of the foundational principles that I bring to my own writing. But I mean, it, it, you know, we're all three of us poets. And it's kind of interesting to think about the difference between the intentional use of ambiguity mm. and ambiguity that arises. Um, I, I don't want to say just unintentionally because it can arise unintentionally, but ambiguity that arises because someone is not really being careful with their language. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there's also a combustion in play when we play without intention. Poets tend to play, you know, in their language, a place experiment with meaning, you know, almost like letting go of their intention. At least in my practice, I try to do that. And then yes. I try to bring that intention in later on in revisions. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. but maybe there's that play. Maybe there's something there, the discovery of play, like the way scientists may combine different elements and have a combustion that creates something more powerful than what they intended, you know? But when you play, and I think you're right. I mean, poet, right, part of what part of writing poetry is play. Yeah. Right. If you're not playing with the language in some way, I, in, in some way, it's you're doing something different. Mm -hmm. But again, I would say, I, I mean, my own feeling is there's a difference between a kind of, disciplined play yeah you know as opposed to just kind of throwing stuff up against the wall to see what sticks for one mm -hmm. to mix metaphors for, for a minute <laughs> right yeah. um you know i mean you know when when you write a when you write a poem and you play and you bring to that play your you know your experience as a writer your experience as a person your experience with language it you know play is it's it, it, play is also very structured productive play i would say is also very structured in some way and i don't by structure i don't necessarily mean a formal rule like a sonnet or something you know um you know or or some places you know some people will will create will do sort of random They'll roll dice to figure out which words to use. Those okay. kinds of right, those kinds yeah. of random, you know, those those kinds of. But even that <clears throat> has a structure. Yeah. And so I think you know I think there's a difference, but in that sense, if that if that responds to your question. Thank you, thank you. That's really yeah. good. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we can shift gears a little bit. Talk a little bit about how. You know, talking about we're talking just picking up on the thread of empowerment and empowering the reader. You know, um, one of the themes of the show, of course, the subtle themes of the show has to do with social justice and kind of empowerment of people and empowerment of, you know, kind of in our communities and our communities and our and our fellow um, fellow community members. Um, mm -hmm. So when we think about social justice, we think about kind of like empowering um, people who uh, perhaps aren't perceived be, perceived as being marginalized or perceived as being like, you know, you know, their self-perception, I think, is important to, you know, um, you know, and our, our perception of others is important to kind of empower and be able to see everyone as like what, like, uh, what do you think about that? Like, 
like improving our sight. You know, a lot of times with racial tensions and and gender tensions and um, and class tensions. You know, we think about oh, it's, it's always their problem as opposed to our problem. And how can we, you know, mount it on ourselves to be our problem and be able to see people. And what is the what is the ultimate end game? Like, do you think it's to see people in social justice? Do you think it's to see people as equal or to see people as um, in equities sense, like being able to raise up people who are um, being pushed down, oppressed, oppressed. What, what is the, what is your take on this kind of nuanced battlefield that we have in this world? Oh my gosh. You just, you just asked about like five questions. Yeah, I know. I know. It's a, it's a very nuanced. Uh, so I'll let you just run with whatever you kind of, whatever impels you, whichever one impels you the most. I'll let I mean, you run with that. And there's no need to address all of them. No, I, I'm just it's just trying to tease it out. I mean, I, one of the interesting quests, one of the things that you said that I, that interests me is is how do you how do we learn to see, for example, sexism, right, right, you know, gender issues. I will say sexism um, as a man's issue and not just as a women's issue. Exactly. Or how do you come to see race? as an issue for white people as opposed to just you know it's the problem you know it's it's the problem of people of color and white people can sort of help if we want to be nice but it's mm -hmm. not really our problem right you know how do you um <clears throat> and in my own experience i mean this is actually something that was not i didn't i i didn't say in the in the in the my you know the kind of pre-interview talking that we did my own experience is that a lot of that has to do with letting go of shame you know, we are all of us, we are all of us socialized into role, into positions in society, right? And I don't, there probably isn't a single person who is not in some way socialized into a position where they have power over someone else. Whether, whether that is an identity or it's a class, whether it's, a, you know, gender, race, and so on and so on, or it's class, mm. right? Or it's, a, you know, it's a class-based, class-based kind of issue. Um, and, and in my own experience, the way I learned, excuse me, the way I kind of was able in my own life to make that leap was, you know, to let go of the shame of understanding that I had been participating as, and for want of a better word, oppressor, you know? Um, now, how you get to how you get to that is a different question, right? I mean, how you get someone to open their world, you know, to see others differently than they have been seeing them—that's a tough. That's a tough question. Mm. You know, that's a very tough question. Sometimes, don't you think it happens just by, you know, living with people? Yeah. Right. Sometimes it happens just by living with people, you know, in, in, in the labor movement and in, in, in uh, you know, kind of Mar at least a little bit. I don't not that I have read Marx deeply or anything like that, but the little bit that I know about it, you know, they will say that if you get rid of class. Then the motivations for racial or gender or what have you discrimination start to disappear. Because so much of so many of those are rooted in. I need to keep what's mine. Yes. You know, and I, I don't want you to have it. Um, like I have power over you. 
You know, I'm sorry, Mike. I didn't. Power, do just, I have power, like you know, the marginalized people that get marginalized or enslaved. It's all like they've been conquered, often, or mar you know, right. they've slaughtered or conquered or genocide, whatever number of things. And it often starts with, yeah, we think we're better than you because we defeated you and we took your lands and so that's like they maybe before they even knew who they were they had some image of some other savage or anyone that's different than them but they use that as an excuse to and that's how these things you know yeah. but don't you th don't you th don't you think that it's actually i mean that it actually starts with i want your land yes regardless, regardless of who you yeah, are I just, want your, I just want i want yeah i want your land and then they come up with excuses for how right. we're gonna like you know kill you or oppress you or right. you or whatever it takes to possess what you have you know like right america was started so because <laughs> i think because I, I think i think often that's the thing that get that's missing is that you know a power structures i mean there's a material reality to it and it's the, you know they're not just they're not just ideas that you wrestle with. I mean you have to be willing to wrestle with the material reality. You know that you know I live I live a relatively comfortable middle class life, right? I mean I've been I've been teaching at the same place for thirty years. I make a salary that reflects thirty years worth of seniority, right? I live a relatively comfortable middle class life. Um, it's it's to deny that the difference between me and, and and you know between me and oh my between me and the life that my students live or the lives that my students can aspire to right to deny that that that, that difference and the difficulty that my students who are mostly students of color Right, will have in in kind of getting, let's say, to where I am, is not rooted in material. I mean, their material circumstances and the differences between our material circumstances when I was their age, even, um, you know, misses at least half the problem. I think. Mm. And and for me, you know, a, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of social justice talk. Well, I think it's starting to change, but for a long time, I think a lot of social justice talk missed that material aspect. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of free associating. Yeah, I think, I think here. definitely when we start to, um, I think maybe when we speak broadly, you know, it's not helpful. But when we speak to the person we're speaking to, you know, we kind of uh, kind of when we speak broadly about, you know, people. Um, uh, when we talk about broadly about class, race, and gender, you know, we just talk about, you know, all women experience this or men experience this or, or the rich experiences or poor experiences is not helpful because we have, we bring with loaded assumptions in our minds and it becomes, and we, uh, these, these, the people's experience becomes diffuse in this forest of, you know, our assumptions and what we've experienced and, and, and kind of the assumptions that we bring and these ignorant assumptions right. many times. Right. And when we're talking to the people we're talking to, um, that's why it's so important, I think, for integration, you know, to, to have to have the experience of talking to people from very lived experiences, um, mm -hmm. you know, to the point where you're actually actively seeking to be friends with people lived of, of different lived experience. 
You know, I don't know. I mean, I, people like that like to think of that as being bad, but I think that's a personal quest of mine, and I think it should be everyone's personal quest. You know? to, to, you mean to, to kind of to, to meet to be um, in community with lots of different kinds of people? Exactly, exactly. Like yeah. if you have like uh, for a long time, I had you know this. I was talking about many years ago, but I had uh, under I had misunderstandings about transgenderism. You know, I had misunderstandings about sexual. Um, you know, gender dysmorphism or gender right. gender identification. I misunderstanding. It just made me feel uncomfortable. So I, I really went down my way to interview people, and that's just on the show. But also prior to that, I went down my way to meet people who had non-binary people or people of transgender. Mm-hmm. When I when mm-hmm. I not that I had to go out of my way, but they were there, and I began to open my eyes to the fact that they were there, and right. and try to interact with them and try to talk to them and try to. Not not like interviewing them in the sense like before the show I wasn't interviewing in the sense like oh what's your lived experience you know that kind of thing but rather keep... just being open and honest being like oh just let me talk to them as human beings and you right. know and I understand you understand that every little thing they say is like informed by their perspective and yeah. you know and st- I'm still learning about pronouns like it's very easy for me to confuse pronouns and I, yes. I it's, it's a little difficult I have to be very conscious of like all right this person is they and this person is you know it's hard for me to right but I don't know it's just like yeah yeah. yeah. But, uh, now, I, I have started sending, when I teach, I've started sending emails to my students, including in the emails that I send to my students, just a statement that says, you know, if, if you would like to be called by a name and by implication pronoun, other than the one that is on your college registration, because the, the, the class list that I get obviously has whatever their legal name is, yeah. because that's what they have to, you know, have, you know what they have to give for um, the registration. And if you would like to be called by that, you know, please tell me because then I just use that name rather than call them by a name that they don't want to be, you know, that they don't want to be known by. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, for that, for that kind of a, for that kind of a thing. Yeah. So one topic we can go into a little bit is, um, you know, uh, something you get, you gave us a heads up on, on the pre-interview questions, you know, the, the, now we're kind of at the tail end of it, but the Me Too movement for men, you know, we have three men in the room here, but like, uh, you know, how, what that means for men and what that means, like sexual violence and sexual kind of power games and, and power uh, dynamics mean for men and how we can be cognizant and how we can be kind of, uh, we how, tell us what is your take on kind of this movement and, and how men can participate and be empowered in this movement. Well, first, I should say, I, I hope it's not the end of the movement. I mean, I hope yeah. it is, you know, I hope it is something that that continues to grow. Perhaps transform, it, perhaps transform into something like a little bit. I think, in my opinion, I think it needs to be level up into a more, you know, and that's the kind of the conversation we're having now is in, inclusive, you know, to different yeah. things. I felt I feel like there's a lot of accusations being thrown around rather yeah, than felt you know, like a conversation being by who? I mean, some of the powerful, some of the powerful, like, white women who took the mantle of the Me Too movement and didn't include, just, there were some accusations, I'm yeah. not celebrity names that, of, there were specific celebrity names were just, like, mistreating each other, and they didn't include other marginalized peoples from different cultures and ethnicities, like, at all, hardly. Right. And, uh, so there was a lot, it just felt like it was just, they were, like, um, People in powerful positions that had a, you know, like a podium, and they just were co-opting it. Some, maybe some for genuine reasons, but some seemed like it wasn't so genuine. Yeah, there's a lot. I, I, I hope that the conversation will continue to be a conversation 
rather yeah. than a witch trial, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Rather well, than a witch hunt, like a, you know? Well, after people if you disagreed with them, even if yeah. it was... Yeah, it definitely well, appeared like that to me as well. Yeah. It was or becoming a witch hunt, you know? So I, I didn't have that experience at all. Oh. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't feel, I didn't feel that way about it at all. I mean, it, it is true, right? So, I mean, Me Too was first coined by a woman named T Tamara Burke or Tanara Burke. She's an African American woman, yeah. um, in the early two thousands, right? And and it was specifically, if I remember correctly, she coined it specifically as a way for women who had been sexually violated or assaulted or harassed in some way um, to form a kind of community, right? Mm -hmm. And then after the allegations against Harvey Weinstein, I think it was Alyssa Milano. Right. And I don't know if she like used me to knowing about the, I don't remember if she used me to knowing about the prior use of the term where she just sort of came up with it on her own. Cause it's not that, you know, I don't want to say it's not original, but it's an easy, it's an easy one. It's an easy leap to make to get to a me too kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's when it sort of took off. And I think Mikey, you're a hundred percent correct that at first, at least the movement was focused on these women who had been victimized by very powerful men. Yes. Right. And then, and then, it, and then every once in a while you would hear about a, a man who had been victimized by a man. So I, I don't remember the people's name, but, you know, Kevin Spacey was accused. Yes. James Levine, the conductor, was accused. And then there's a, I think his name is Bruce Weber, who was a very well-known fashion photographer, who was, and all of those accusations were by men. Um, but, you know, I, I think, I actually, I actually didn't perceive it at all as a witch hunt. Um, I, which is not to say that there aren't that there may not have been individual women who brought accusations that were unfounded, or individual you know individual people who kind of saw the Me Too movement as an opportunity to get something. You know, I'm, I'm, in other words, I don't want to I don't want to pretend that there may not have been individual people who acted unethically. Yeah, I don't. I don't <clears throat> because I don't. I you know I. I just don't know, but I, I don't want to pretend that that may not have been the case. But, you know, I, I think that as men, we don't often, unless you really are, are paying attention, I don't, I think as men, we don't often see the ways in which our behavior, which is, you know, I mean, unintentionally, right? So I'm not even talking about somebody who is intentionally trying to do something. But the ways in which our behavior feeds into these kinds of, you know, a culture in which women are sexually objectified and in which that objectification contributes to their being silenced in the workplace, contributes to, you know, a whole range of, a whole range of things. And I think it's, this, is, this kind of gets back to what I was saying before about letting go of shame. It's really, really hard at first to acknowledge that that's the case, even. You know, I mean, I don't know. I certainly, I know I certainly, you know, can, can, I can speak for a long time on things, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I know that in my life, there were times when I absolutely, I mean, I mean, I monopolized meetings at school. I spoke over women. You know, I did all kinds of things that I just felt like I was expressing myself. 
right? But in fact, in the act of doing that, I was also silencing women in the room. And, and you know, to me, a lot of, you know, that's to acknowledge that and just say, okay, I did it, right? I did it. It's part of how I, you know, it, it, is, it is part of what I take for granted as a man in the society that I can take up that space, whether it's verbal or physical. It's not my fault that I have that assumption. I mean, it's not like I consciously said, you know what, I'm going to act like an asshole to women, right? Um, and now I want to change. And, and you know, and, 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 not, and to change and to kind of get over the guilt because the guilt doesn't serve anybody's it doesn't serve my interests and it certainly doesn't serve the interests of women. Um, I don't know if either of you read John Hockenberry's very long essay in Harper's. So John Hockenberry, what's the radio show he had on NPR? Um, I don't remember the name of the show, but he, I mean, very long running show. And, and he was, he was fired for, because of allegations of sexual harassment. And he wrote this very, very long piece that Harper's Magazine published in which, um, and I, of course, I, I kind of wish I had, I had it fresher in my mind. But what, I will, what I'll tell you is he basically, every, the, the whole piece was a kind of, well, he, well, he of course acknowledged this kind of behavior is wrong and one shouldn't do this kind of behavior and one shouldn't do that kind of behavior. Um, in the workplace as a man towards women, but the whole piece was an apology for the attitudes that inform those behaviors, right? And and so his ba it basically was, you know, men just need to learn, you know, men don't need to change the way of seeing or thinking, they just need to learn a little bit of self-control. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's really good because I think, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of therapy is like cognitive behavioral therapy, is you know that there's the the way we see ourselves and the way we think about ourselves, the thought beliefs, our thought actions, and then there's the behavioral, which flows out of that. You know, it flows out of the way we see ourselves, our cognitive beliefs, and then mm -hmm. you know, you know, a lot of times people will be like, "Oh, I'm just gonna control my actions or whatever." But really, I think we really need to attack is the cognitive, the the toxicity within um, the cognitive, because it, and when you address that toxicity. Uh, honestly and, and without fearlessly, um, you know, your behavior will just naturally change. I think, you know, I think there's some truth in that. Yeah. But then, but then, but, but so, but then the interesting question is, you know, personal change doesn't necessarily lead to structural change. Oh, but I mean, you were just saying, right. I, I would disagree because I, you were just saying how our toxic personal behavior informs the larger, uh, you were just defending a case to say that our toxic beliefs inform the behavior in subtle ways. So I think the opposite is true that if we really purge out those toxicities and our behavior changes, we can, and it can reinforce in subtle, in subtle ways. We can reinforce a, uh, egalitarian uh, society, you know, we can, uh, a green light. So I would, oh, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, you're right. I mean, I, I mean, you won't have change without that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You won't, you, I mean, maybe that's that necessary is, but insufficient. You're saying we need, yeah, that's more. right. Yeah, I mean, it's insufficient. Yeah, it's obviously necessary for structural change. Yeah, but if we are not willing, I don't care who we is, whether we as men, we as white people, we as straight people. I don't care who we is, right? Yeah, 
if we are not also willing to step back from whatever power, you know, structural power and privilege that we have, mm. what good is our, you know, what difference does then our personal change, what difference do those personal changes make? Yeah. Right? I mean, definitely, I think like um, when we look at the Buddhist past, we can talk a little bit about how religious traditions have informed us. We can transition into that. You know, in the, my, in the Buddhist path, they talk about renunciation and they talk about kind of the, the attachment to goals or the attachment to product, or the attachment to um, the attachment or the, the desire for outward, outward stimuli that um, that will, you know, kind of. Um, kind of appease our ego or something like that. And mm-hmm. Attachment, non-attachment, the practice of non-attachment is severing the ego or severing the ego's need for like a, a quick fix, a quick, right. uh, you know, dopamine fix that, oh, you're doing a great job or here's a, here's a bonus or here's the thing. The need for that kind of dopamine fix for that, to sever right. that and find, instead, you know, kind of go into that, um, go into that uh, world with the, uh, go into the dark of that world with your own light you know, and your own kind of truth and your own kind of powerful today. I'm kind of riffing, but I don't know. I don't know. We have to kind of, what, what are some of the traditions that informed you told me that you, uh, at one time you said you, one time you went to be a rabbi in your life. Oh yeah. Judaism has influenced you. What are some of the traditions? Like tell us a little bit about how, um, your take on this moral code discipline. We're talking a little bit about what is Jewish Jewish beliefs on that? Wow. <laughs> are your beliefs on that it's a little big a topic lot. yeah that's a lot <laughs> yeah. i'll start with the <coughs> excuse me hold on yeah give you a moment <clears throat> you know, i'll just say that this is radio free brooklyn we're here with micah zevin as a co-host and uh richard jeffrey newman who's acting as the uh, featured guest where riddling his brain with many thought-provoking questions <laughs> and you can find out more about richard jeffrey newman on his website you can google him so we were asking the question about um, uh, moral discipline. Uh, you know, I gave a little my, my take on and Buddhism's take on that, and uh, my interpretation of Buddhism's take. And now uh, Richard's going to tell us kind of what his take on uh, on this discipline is and the role of discipline in our lives, uh, in his life or in your well, life. Well, I'll I'll start with um, the easy one that you ask, which is it is true. When I was a teenager, I wanted to be an Orthodox rabbi. Yeah. Um, and I went to the Hebrew for high school. I went to the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County um, as part of a program that was called the New Opportunities Program, and it was a program specifically designed for kids who wanted to become what in Judaism are called Balchuva. And Balchuva literally means someone who is going to return. Chuva means means in Hebrew return. It's the nominal form of the verb to return. And it also means repentance, right? So the idea, the idea in Judaism of repentance is that one is somehow returning to the right path, to some sense of, of I don't want to say authentic self because I don't really think that that's what it means. But you know, to some, to some sense, to some, to some way of being that that is um, that leaves I don't want that, that that is less sinful. Let's say to use that those and. It, you know, at the time, I don't think I was very conscious of why I want, you know, what was attractive to me about orthodoxy. Um, but over the years, you know, I, I came to understand it this way. So I was, when I was a kid, 
and and some of this was happening when I was at the Hebrew Academy. Actually, um, I was I was sexually assaulted. I was I am a survivor of childhood sexual violence by two different men at two different points during my my teenage years. Once when I was twelve or thirteen years old, and then the the second man from the time I was fifteen until I was about sixteen or seventeen. And you know, one of the things that that I felt, as do many survivors of any gender, you know, dirty, unworthy, shameful, bad, somehow undeserving of of love, of happiness, all of you know, all of those things, right? And Orthodox Judaism offered me a way to be a good person. You know, there's there's it's very clear there are 613 commandments in the Torah. You follow them, and you know, I mean, following them is not a simple thing, but you kind of follow that way. And I mean, the term for you know, the term in Hebrew for Jewish law is halacha, which means the way, right? Halacha, if you're not Ashkenazi, um, but my pronunciation is Ashkenazi, I can't help it, um, yeah. right? Um, which means the way, and so the idea is that the law, you know, Jewish law is a path that you follow, and if you follow that path you are a good person, you are worthy of God's love, you will get whatever reward you're going to get in religious terms and all of that. And, and I really think that that was where my, my attraction to Judaism came from, to Orthodox Judaism came from. Um, the, the, I, I kind of, I fell out of, I mean, I fell out of love with it to, to use that term, it was a process. So part of that process came from, so on uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the high, the Jewish high holy days, right? This, this is not, a, this is a time for introspection and repentance. It's a time when you're supposed to really reflect on the ca- your own character, right? The character of your life. But when I went to, went to synagogue, with my, we would, we would go actually here in Jackson Heights because my, my, my mother grew up in Jackson Heights. My grandparents lived in Jackson Heights for many, many years. And we would go to the Jewish center of Jackson Heights when it was on 82nd street. Um, when the Jewish community in, in this neighborhood was big enough to sustain, I mean, it was a three-story building. They had a school in there, a catering hall. Um, the rabbi would inevitably spend some significant portion of time in his sermon asking people to give money. And from the, from the synagogue's point of view, that was a rational thing to do because this was when, my, when I was in yeshiva, one of my rebbies, he used to call them cardiac Jews. And they were the Jews who every time Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur rolled around, they realized they had been bad Jews all year and their hearts started, they started to get heart palpitations because you know, they had to go and, and repent so that they, you know, God would forgive them and so they would go to shul. And this was a time when the synagogue was full. You had more people there. And so from, from a purely practical point of view, it was um, a chance for the rabbi to raise money for the shul because that's, after all, how the shul, that's how it ran. It ran on membership fees. It ran on... But for me, that that sermon connected to an aspect of the prayers where you know they you say you you ask god 
to um, inscribe you in the book of life, not the book of death, the book of wealth, not the book of poverty, the book of this, not the book of that. And there was, the, you know, the underlying metaphor is that God is sort of a bookkeeper, hmm. you know, and he's sort of up there with the green visor, or, you know, old fashioned bookkeeper, right? With the green visor and the ledger and, and, and ticking off your good deeds in the good column and your sins in the bad column. And I, I mean, that just, I had no use for that. I just didn't have any use for that. And then um, two things happened. One was, you know, I, I fell in love with a woman who was not Jewish. And I had to make a choice. I mean, she and she and I were for, you know, we were together for about seven years when, when we were in our 20s. And I had to make a choice, you know, which was more important to me, to be able to love who I wanted to love and be with this person who really made me happy and fulfilled. Or... Judaism, because, um, you know, there, there, there is a strong prohibition, in, an absolute prohibition, if you really follow the tradition, in Orthodox Judaism against, against inter, intermarriage, interreligious, interfaith marriage, right? And there's a logic to it. I mean, if you, have, if you want to have a Jewish home and follow the laws and celebrate the holidays, it kind of doesn't make sense to marry someone who doesn't come from that tradition. I mean, there's a, there's a, there is a logic to it. Um, and I made the decision that I wanted to be with this woman. And, so, you know, and, and so that was another kind of step away. But I think the, 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 the really big step that I made, um, there's, a, there's a term in, I guess, it's, I guess it's Yiddish. I mean, it may have a similar term in Hebrew, but in, in the yeshiva they called it, it was in Yiddish, which is um, Yiddish and Neshama. So Yiddish means Jewish, Neshama means soul. And there, and there's this idea, you know, there's this idea that you have, you have a, a Yiddish in the Shama, a Jewish soul. And when I would listen to people, to the, my teachers when I was in high school, and to other, you know, as I was would go places and listen to people and be part of Jewish community, Orthodox Jewish community, and they would talk about your the Yiddish in the Shama is like, you know, the Yiddish in the Shama yearns for God. It yearns to be be, you know, it yearns for you to come back to Judaism, or it yearns for this, or it yearns for that. And that seemed, that was far more important in the way that, though, at least the way I heard it talked about, um, than your body, right? The body was profane, the body was dirty, the body was sexual, the body was this, that, or the other thing. And, and it was around that time that I started to really to try and come to terms with the fact that I had been sexually violated. And, you know, one of the things, one of the things that, at least in my experience, um, part of coming to terms with that was learning really, you know, learning again to be comfortable in and to like my body. Um, you know, many survivors, when you listen to them talk, I mean, and many, many survivors will talk about in the moments of being, you know, of being violated, um, being abused, a sort of dissociation where they feel themselves separate from their body, right? And there's this kind of alienation from the physical body. And that distinction between body and soul seemed to me at the time to kind of replicate <clears throat> the alienation that I felt in myself. Mm. And to reinforce that if I was going to buy into that separation between body and soul, mm -hmm. that it would re, you know, kind of reinforce the alienation yeah. 
and validate the alienation that I felt within myself. And I think that was the moment when I really said, okay, you know what, I'm kind of done with this. Yeah, I think that religious traditions, like, you know, the, the main criticism of many religious traditions is that they um, inculcate a kind of codependency, first of all, that you're kind of dependent on them for your own empowerment. Uh, second of all, there's like a, dis, as you're talking about the disembodiment or the kind of separation, you know, they like to, they, they, a lot of time institutions will like to view um, this kind of surgical removal of a limb uh, using a metaphor. And then you still feel the phantom pain. But I think it is like trying to separate away from the ocean. You can't separate the two. The, you know, we're kind of, we're all connected. You can't like sever, you know, if you sever a limb, you have feel that phantom pain just like that. You can't sever away from the ocean. And, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately, I think that what we're talking about is like kind of like connecting, uh, going deep into that oceanic feeling and, and they, they don't want you to do that because then when you go deeper and deeper, you're connected to all things, all people. And you, you release that tribalism and then they, they bec- their tribe becomes impoverished. The, whatever religion we're talking about, whatever mm-hmm. religion, you know, I mean, this, this is true of every institution because they yes. want you to see them as, you know, being the, the, only, the only source of your empowerment, you know. Yeah. Right. But now to, to tie it all together. We, we, you had to answer to the person's political. What does it mean? The person's political. I didn't understand your answer. So you have to, you have to give me again, uh, as we start to end, give me the final word on, uh, your final word on what is the word, what is the phrase the person's political mean to you? And then we'll end the show. Um, and how maybe bringing it all home, uh, as best we can put a little bow on it. Okay. Well, I mean, I think, I think what I said, because <laughs> I answered the question. So why no, no, don't worry about the answer. You can just riff off of that. But- well, no, but I think what I said is, you know, there is no human relationship that does not have contained within it a negotiation of power. Yeah. Right. And, and politics is about the negotiation of power. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, that's, you know, if, I mean, that's what, that's what an election is. That's what make lawmaking is. Right. I mean, on that level of politics. And, you know, and we all of us in our families talk about, I'm sure, talk about family politics. Yes. Right. So, I mean, it's, you know, so, I mean, so there's no way in, there's no human relationship that doesn't have, a, in that sense, a political element to it. Amen. And those, <laughs> those elements are inevitably connected to the larger kind of political elements of society, you know. Um, if you're a woman in a family, absolutely the polit- you know, whatever the politics are within your family, somehow or another are going to be connected to the fact that women are positioned politi- you know, in society in a particular way, right? Yeah. And that there are, you know, and that, and that there is you know, the kind of the relationship between genders is a negotiation of power. Yeah. You know, and, and, right, and you can make that for race, for class, for, you know, pick your, pick your axis. And so in that sense, you know, the personal is political. Mm. I mean, it, you know, when, when, when the feminist, because that, that, that phrase right, comes out of the feminist movement, the women's movement of the 1970s, the personal is political. And, um, you know, what did it come out of? They, women began to talk to each other in consciousness raising groups. And they, and they came to the understanding that their personal experiences as women with men or in institutions run by men were also collective experiences, and and so in that and so their personal experiences were political, 
right? They were collect. They were also collected, and so in that sense, um, I th you know, to me, that's where the personalist political sort of starts. Yeah. With you know, with that realization, um, and and with the idea that you know, so my politics, if I, and I'm not talking about Democrat versus Republican, but let's just say my right. For me, my politics, my po my real political awakening in that sense kind of started with feminism. Mm. And it started with feminism because it was in the 1980s, when I, late 70s, early 80s, when I started to kind of talk about the fact that I had been sexually abused. Feminism is what gave me the language to talk about it as sexual violence. Right. There was, I mean, in the 19th, at that time, no one was talking about sexual violence against boys and men. You just didn't see it. It was, it, you know, people even thought, I mean, even in, in, in this field of psychiatry, um, people really thought that when boys talked about being sexually abused, they were often fantasizing. Mm. Um, and, you know, so for me to find in feminism this, this way of talking about my experience that made it, I mean, absolutely not my fault not my imagination i wasn't crazy um you know that was that was prof that was a profound realization and my politics in this kind of small you know sort of largest sense began there that's the personal is political yeah, right? yeah. thank yes. you thank you and do you, do you honestly believe that if we free our mind, the rest will follow? Do you think we should be colorblind? We shouldn't be so shallow? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know if freeing our minds means not being color, it means being colorblind. Oh, yeah. Right. I'm, you know, no, I, I, I don't, I don't think it's just about freeing your mind oh. because what does freeing your mind really mean? Yeah, yeah. How can we fight right. among this? This we're living in a society, you know. Right. We don't live exactly. alone. If it's just a question of us being in our island, then freeing your mind maybe was in our own little bubble, our own little bubble. You know, it's like then freeing your mind would the rest would follow. And I mean, we I really, blind, you know. I I really do think. I mean, as much as important as it is to come to political awareness and to co and to come to kind of a social awareness and the kind of awareness that I think you mean when you say free your mind. Yeah. I, I really have come to believe that real social, real change, mm -hmm. enduring change, requires a change in material circumstances. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And if yeah. we don't, you know, and if and if we don't, I'm not going to say which comes first. I'm not going to say one has to come first necessarily. Yeah. Though I know people do say material change comes first. I have to cut you off there, but uh, I just want to tell people that this is ready for Brooklyn. Support us, love us, follow us, do whatever you can. Thank you so much, guys. Yes. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Vijay Micah. This Thank was a lot you. of fun. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Have Bye. a good day.